This is 100 Years of Cox. You are listening to a podcast by Francis Thompson. Ten Machel Cox siblings, born at the end of the 1800s, wrote to each other for decades. In 1908, Enid is married to Cyril, a schools inspector, and is a wealthy Edwardian matron in Liverpool. Edmund is a poor Anglican curate in Derbyshire, soon to marry May. Arthur, married to Dorothy, is headmaster of Garfield House Prep School in Plymouth. Neville works for the railways in Pretoria, South Africa. Wilfred lives in British Columbia in Canada. He has been a schoolmaster, but is currently building roads and grubbing stumps. Bernard is a London stockbroker, living at home in Sydenham. Aldwyn is an Anglican priest in Nyasaland, now Malawi. Cuthbert is a schoolmaster at Berkhamsted School. Avis is housekeeper at Arthur's School in Plymouth. And Vera, when not playing hockey, assists her father in writing and editing his books and looks after their ageing parents at home in Sydenham, South London. Cuthbert is grumpy. The flu epidemic was affecting Berkhamsted School. Everyone was ill. A school's inspection is underway and he is annoyed at Enid criticising his spelling. Arthur describes the search for new servants at Garfield House, as well as expressing his dismay that his favourite newspaper, The Tribune, has closed. Vera explains how wearing long skirts prevents good stick work in ladies' hockey and Vera and Bernard go to watch the Oxford and Cambridge boat race. Enid has been to Aintree to watch the Grand National, and they sat in a stand of seats on a barge on the canal. Sitting in a boat on a canal to watch a horse race, very strange. And Avis, Bernard and Cuthbert went to Branscombe in Devon for a few days to check out a boarding house and the landlady, to see if it would do for the whole family for their upcoming August summer holidays. Of course, there were no photos or online reviews to help you choose your holiday accommodation in 1908. Cuthbert's letter. Berkhamsted, March 30th, 1908. Dear family... At this time of term, a master's lot is not a happy one, especially if in addition to school worries, he happens to be an honest secretary trying to revive a moribund choral society in a town where he knows not nor wishes to know societies, especially too if in further addition he, as treasurer of a tennis club, is engaged in a tiresome controversy with the secretary of the club who employs American election methods to gain his ends, especially too if in the middle of all this he is bothered by a saturnine and ill-mannered HMI who has never done the sort of work he is presuming to criticise and inspect and who insists that the aforesaid harassed master should give, for his delectation, a history lesson to a stupid form which the master was not prepared to give. 
especially too if one's eldest sister, remembering those remote ages when those now in authority were in subjection, persists in drawing the attention of the world to his little foibles in the way of spelling. As a rule, I don't, but I shall now, draw continual attention to the failings of my fellow budgeteers. I don't say in each letter, Enid has been sucking her finger again. Does she do it at the Committee of the Blind Workshops? Or Edmund will still say, Ain. When will he learn to talk properly? Does he do it in his sermons? Or I might say, Arthur has been biting more holes in the sheets. I wonder if he does it to the Garfield House tablecloths at dinner. I spare the rest of you, but I could and I would. From all of this, you will see that I have been rather extra busy lately. Flu has been rampant here. Whole houses are down with it and in quarantine. I escaped, but it meant taking a good deal of extra work for those masters who did not escape. Arthur, my reputation as a raconteur at school depends entirely on the budget and the relatable stories that are enclosed therein. So I have to thank you for sharing such a gem this time. The master's common room was suitably entertained. Your story of mismatched boots is delightful and has caused much hilarity here. As to the religion of our Spaniard, there is a small Roman Catholic chapel in the town, which he, in common with a French boy at one of the other houses, and two day boys also attend. I have been, like you, inconsolable since the Tribune's decease. It was such an excellent newspaper and I have been reduced to the Morning Post, but I don't like it, and the effect is to make me more certain of my liberalism. Vera, naughty! Here is the place, I think, to give my impressions of the great hockey match. I managed to obtain time off from school and was very glad to be able to attend in person. The two things that impressed me most were the speed of Vera and two others and the combination of the right wing. Vera was undoubtedly the best on the field at taking and giving passes while going at full speed but none of them handle their sticks with the cleverness of quite an average man. I suppose really it is impossible they should, as all the cleverest work is done right at the feet, and ladies' skirts naturally interfere with that. Still, the game was interesting in the extreme, and I was very proud of Vera. When I got back to Berkhamsted, I was congratulated right and left by boys and masters on Vera's performance. Some of the newspapers reported that four goals were hers. You see, there was a field day for our rifle corps on that Wednesday, and the boys and masters found out why it was I did not go. My famous sister enhances my Berkhamsted reputation. Avis, in the summer, I want to see you imitating a raven at Branscombe. It must be a very pretty sight, and I look forward to such an occasion. The other day I went up to town to a great dinner at Hoburn. There were 450 men present at the Amateur Football Association dinner, which, as you know, has split from the Football Association, and to which the Corinthians, Casuals, Varsities 
and all old boys clubs belong, as well as many others. It was a most successful meeting and a splendid speech was made by an enthusiastic French sportsman who, in his excitement, kept relapsing into French. Ever yours entirely, Cuthbert. Notes on Cuthbert's letter. He only managed to write 10 book reviews in this letter. I say this with some irony. How did Cuthbert find time to read all those books and write book reviews for his siblings? Berkhamsted School was in the midst of an influenza epidemic. Whole boarding houses were in quarantine. Mothers and other female relatives were travelling in to help nurse the schoolboys and schoolmasters. Stiff British upper lip and all that. Keep calm and carry on. If you are not British, you may not know what an HMI is. In the early 1900s, it stood for His Majesty's Inspectors. Nowadays, UK teachers may dread the visit of the Ofsted inspectors. Cuthbert is not impressed with his inspector. Cuthbert says he has been bothered by a saturnine and ill-mannered HMI who has never done the sort of work he is presuming to criticise and who insists that the aforesaid harassed master should give, for his delectation, a history lesson to a stupid form which the master was not prepared to give. If you work in the world of education, I dare say you may have a similar anecdote of your own from an inspection. Cuthbert is community-minded and he is involved in everything. The Choral Society and the Tennis Club. And he is stressed and busy as all his spare lessons are taken up covering classes for sick colleagues. He says, a master's lot is not a happy one. He is referencing Pirates of Penzance by Gilbert and Sullivan and the song A Policeman's Lot is Not a Happy One. Gilbert and Sullivan operas were still fresh and new in the early 1900s. The siblings went to the theatre a lot and they thought the Gilbert and Sullivan comic operas were fabulous. But Cuthbert is most annoyed at his eldest sister Enid who criticised him for spelling a word H-E-A-R instead of H-E-R-E. Enid was intelligent and well-educated for a woman of that time, and as a teenager she taught some of her younger brothers for years, preparing them for their public school entrance exams. As a small child, Cuthbert once hid behind the drawing room curtains in the rectory, listening to grown-up conversations, and once he burst out, announcing to an important visitor that Enid had taught him everything he knew. Cuthbert is acknowledging that Enid used to be his teacher, but he's now grown up and a teacher himself, and it's about time that Enid stopped. Arthur's letter. Garfield House. Started 8th of March. Finished April the 1st, 1908. Dear relatives, as Austin Chamberlain would say, nothing could be more inopportune than the arrival of the budget. But I must, as Ponsonby would say, make it convenient to start on my own contribution. As a matter of fact, the budget has not arrived and at its present rate will not reach me till the end of term. So I am beginning betimes to have a little in hand. 
if my example was more generally followed, there will be less talk of sixpenny fines and old age pensions. While I think of it, I beg to move the adjournment of the House to consider a matter of urgent importance. I want to ask whether it is generally considered expedient that the budget should pursue Edmund on his honeymoon. I have as yet heard nothing at all about the proposed honeymoon, but it may be taken for granted that the misguided budget in the ordinary rotation of croppers would arrive exactly at that season. So I move that the necessary steps be taken in good time to prevent such a fatality. I am quite scandalised, if I may say, at the standard of morality that Edmund has adopted as regards the purloining of photographs. Just as well might a hardened young criminal take your purse out of your pocket and, finding its content disappointing, return it gracefully to you and ask to have his honesty rewarded. Edmund, indeed. I have just had a brilliant inspiration. Bernard's additional quotation describing Avis, call her once, etc., is so admirable that I've handed it to Moore to put to descriptive music. Then, when occasion offers, we can individually or collectively raise the required chant in the form of a glee or perhaps a dirge. Of course, after a while, it would be enough just to hum one bar in order to elicit a reaction from dear Avis. What say you all? Edmund had another attempt to write to me without a single underlined word. Seriously, I quite missed his former spontaneity, having grown so accustomed to reading between the lines. He actually revised his letter and elaborately erased the line, but alas, with all his care, a single underlined word still survived. Talking of importunity, our present parlour-maid has a habit of banging away at our dinner gong for a most unconscionable time in a way that has often exasperated me when I am just finishing off something before a meal. The other day I accidentally stumbled on the true explanation of her seeming impatience, for, coming downstairs unobserved, During the middle of the tintinabulation, I found that while abstractedly continuing the motion of banging the gong, she was gazing intently at her face in the small looking glass of the hall hat stand. She still does it. I watched her doing it again just today. March 29th. I wonder who is contracting a fine of sixpence just now. The budget should really have arrived by now. I feel rather mean not having contributed any sixpenny fines to the missionary box yet. Avis has been widening her housekeeping experiences very much lately in her search for servants. The other day she paid a visit to a lady to inquire about the antecedents of a prospective servant. But, alas, she did not change her outfit first and she went out in her working clothes. At the door, words rather failed her. The consequence was that when at last she explained, rather haltingly, that she'd come about a servant, 
the girl who answered the door took her for an applicant for a situation then vacant in that house and took a message to that effect to her mistress, who sent down a verbal request that the young person should return in an hour's time when the mistress would be disengaged. Avis retired crestfallen and returned home. I may safely say that servant hunting is not Avis's favourite occupation at present. Bernard has very kindly forwarded to me an edition of the Athenaeum containing some book reviews of mine. I have perused them again and I really think that I am entitled to some commiseration. You would hardly believe it, but someone on that editorial staff imagines that he knows more about the English language than your humble servant. Occasionally, I am sufficiently time-serving to accept a correction or a suggestion inserted in the proof, though I very rarely do so under conviction. This time, however, he went behind my back and he made his alteration after the proof had been submitted to me and then returned. I had written, We confess that we were at first unable, literally, to make head or tail of the water rat on her nest, alluding to a very indistinct illustration. I knew well enough that that clever sub-editor would slaughter my innocent literally if it caught his eye. It actually escaped him in the proof, but he had it in the end, and I sadly note its disappearance and chafe under an unmerited rebuke. Because a word is habitually misused, it is all the more reason for using it properly when you see your way to do so. I will add that I'm not prepared to take up the cudgel for Baroness Orezi when she writes in her latest book, been brocade, he was literally hanging on pretty Mistress Betty's lips. I am sure you will all agree that Baroness Orezi clearly does not know how to accurately use the word literally. This morning, Sunday, we took the boys for a change to the dockyard church. But after about ten minutes, the atmosphere became too much for Applin and he very nearly collapsed. My powers of sympathy being greater than Avis's, without wasting a moment on vain regrets, I took him home. Avis, I believe, felt bad too, but thought it would look foolish if we all retired together. April the 1st. Appropriately enough, here comes the budget at last, plump into the middle of exams, just as I foresaw. I have just finished reading it and I am agreeably surprised by its excellence. This may sound somewhat slighting, but my last glimpse of it, out of my proper turn, had not been reassuring as three consecutive members had contributed very short letters, though at least two of them were entirely the victims of circumstance. I feared the result would be the poorest budget on record and I'm delighted that this is not the case. Enid, Burr and Cuthbert have all risen nobly to the occasion this time, and their letters are well up to their own usual high standard. Ahem! I have now not very much more to add, and I have decided, 
if possible, to throw it off my chest and finish my letter this very night. Cuthbert, you do indeed sound truly harassed. I wonder why I underlined those last two words. Hmm. I was actually chewing my handkerchief when I came to your impertinent observation about my habit of chewing. So perhaps, on reflection, I should describe your observation as pertinent. I tried the Morning Post for two days, the Standard for one day, and now have fallen back on the Telegraph. The most that can be said for the Daily Telegraph is that it lights more fires than any other penny paper. I am quite in the depths of despair. Cuthbert, Avis's imitation of a raven is purely vocal. Last Thursday it came in wonderfully well. We had walked a prodigious distance to interview some ravens at Morwell Rocks, a very grand place to which I mean to take Burr upon his next visit here. We soon espied them and after half an hour of quiet watching and playing at the game of hot and cold, I located the nest. Avis and I succeeded in getting so close to it that I pulled a stick out of the nest. Meanwhile, one of the ravens landed within ten feet of us, biting up the ground and croaking away in his deepest bass. When Avis imitated him, he got fearfully excited. We missed two or three trains back. I generally do on such occasions. A fortnight ago, after an expedition to Lady Virtuous Mine with Avis and Miss Munby of Yorkshire, we ran it very close and I succeeded in getting to the station when the train was in. But sadly, the two ladies were some way behind me and the guard refused to keep the train two minutes for the ladies, so we sadly had to wait two hours for another train. I was greatly entertained by Burr's description of the great hockey match, but the Daily Mirror photo is certainly a fly in the ointment. Alas, my poor sister! To return for a moment to my friend Parnell, I have just read his full instructions all the way through regarding calling cards and I'm prepared to accept all he says. Surely, Enid, if your explanation is right, in at least nine cases out of ten, you would have turned up the corner of your calling card. Parnell says definitely that a gentleman must not turn up his card. Arising out of this subject, I would recommend you to read a very edifying book called The Social Fetish by Lady Grove. I found it highly amusing and I had a morbid curiosity to find out in what respects I habitually betray my social mediocrity. I have wanted to read The Blue Lagoon for some time. It has been on my list for ages, but I can't yet get hold of it. And now, in the fullness of time, your beloved brother Arthur, having dispatched the budget almost before he received it, comes to a full stop. Notes on Arthur's letter. For years, Arthur would start writing his letter weeks before he expected the budget to arrive. He was bemused about why his siblings didn't follow his example. Arthur never had to pay a sixpenny fine for keeping the budget longer than a week, despite being a busy headmaster. I had never heard of a British newspaper called The Tribune, so I did some digging this week. 
I've just read a fascinating article in the Historical Journal published by Cambridge University Press. Franklin Thomason was a Liberal Party MP and in 1906 he embarked on a disastrous business proposition by founding a newspaper which ran for just two years. Thomason employed a distinguished and excellent staff of journalists at great cost and the paper also used expensive, modern, electric-powered printing machines at a time when many papers were still using old-fashioned steam power. The Tribune cost one penny, compared to many papers which cost halfpence. The owners believed if the quality of journalism was high enough, readers would be prepared to pay for it. Its journalism was indeed excellent, and it was a very popular paper, despite costing more, and it was seen in every railway carriage. It refused dubious and low-quality adverts, and actually included far fewer adverts than other newspapers, which resulted in less income. The lavish Tribune building included a political gentleman's club, which could accommodate a thousand, as well as a reference library. The club was aimed especially at Liberal and Labour politicians. It appears that its business model was flawed, with a failure to balance the one penny cost with the high cost of experienced journalists and the small amount of revenue generated from advertising. The Tribune's final issue was on 7th of February 1908, and as a final irony, the Tribune buildings were bought by the Daily Mirror. Arthur and Cuthbert would have been horrified. Arthur wrote in his letter, I'm in the depths of woe at the unexpected decease of the Tribune. It was a great shock, and now I don't want any paper at all. Halfpenny papers I can't abide. I tried the Morning Post and the Standard, and now have fallen back on the Telegraph. The most that can be said for the Daily Telegraph is that it lights more fires than any other penny paper. I'm in the depths of despair. Avis said, I want to know what paper you are all reading now. It is simply beastly, the Tribune having ended. It was such a first-rate paper. And Cuthbert wrote, Like Arthur, I have been inconsolable since the Tribune's decease. I have been reduced to the Morning Post, but I don't like it. Arthur was also an avid ornithologist. He always had a notebook in his pocket and he kept detailed bird-watching diaries for his whole life. In the early 1900s, the north coast of Cornwall was isolated and sparsely inhabited and Arthur actually knew the sight of every single pair of nesting birds. He and Avis often went bird-watching and would sit quietly for hours, waiting and watching. Lady Virtuous Mine is a great location name. It was a copper mine on Dartmoor, supposedly named after Queen Elizabeth I. There are ruins still visible today, not far from Yelverton, and it's a great place for a walk. One day I'll get there. Morewell Rocks is near the town of Tavistock. It's hard for us to imagine going on a day trip without a car, but that is what they did. There were enough small branch lines to be able to access Dartmoor by train. It's quite easy to picture poor Arthur's frustration. They've been out all day, it's been raining, and Arthur has run for the afternoon train, but Avis and Miss Munby of Yorkshire are some way behind him, and the guard says, no, the train won't wait for the ladies. 
no Ubers or taxis then, they had to wait at the station for two hours for the next train to get back to Plymouth. Vera's letter, Sydenham, April the 2nd, 1908. Dear family, I've just finished reading the budget and I'm now waiting to do some writing for father. He wants my help with the index. I may as well start my own budget letter. Bernard, Arthur, Enid and Cuthbert contributed such noble letters and I must make an effort myself now as I contributed such a poor scrap in the last budget. I think I will begin about the hockey match at Richmond, though it seems an old story now. I am not going to attempt a description, as Cuthbert and Bernard have already done so, not to mention Mother, who has written to each member of the family and sent them about two newspapers apiece. I have ignored the poor report in the Daily Mirror. It was a pity that the first lady's hockey that Bernard and Mother saw was an international match. I think there is no doubt that far better hockey is seen in a good county or territorial match. Combination is supposed to be the really strong point of ladies' hockey, and certainly in the international it was chiefly conspicuous by its absence. Cuthbert was disappointed by the stick work, and I think he is right. Skirts certainly handicap you, but the majority of lady players don't practice it enough and certainly ought to be better. I am very poor myself. Cuthbert should have seen Miss Hawtree. She ought to have been playing, but was not well, and her stick work is as good as any man's. I must quote a little bit that I read in the hockey field this week. In my ignorance of ladies' hockey, I was astounded at the excellence of the play. The stick work was very clever, quite as good as that of the good men players. The dribbling and combination among the forwards were excellent, and the pace much faster than I had expected to see. This fast pace was kept up throughout the game. On the whole, as an exhibition of hockey, the game reached a very high level, and the English forwards in the second half were magnificent. But there, I think you must have had enough of hockey by now. After the match at Richmond, both teams had dinner at the Trocadero, which was great fun, and we went to the theatre afterwards. We saw a white man, which I quite enjoyed for the second time. We are having a Kent hockey dinner at the Trocadero on Monday. Past and present members of the Kent team are presenting Miss Oliver with a silver salver as a wedding present. She was captain of Kent for many years. Then we are going to the theatre afterwards. April the 5th. I am very proud of a silver badge I have got as a memento of the English team. Each of the eleven has one. It is in the form of a little brooch. I played the last match of the season on Friday, except, of course, for my Hazelmere week, beginning next Thursday, and I have scored 52 goals for Atlanta, my club, this season. I hope I am now safe from mumps, as it is ten days since I left Edmonds, and no symptoms have yet appeared. Nevertheless, some unkind people say you are not safe for a fortnight. 
I enjoyed my little visit to Hallam Fields and thought Edmund's house charming, despite the somewhat unattractive surroundings. The ironworks were rather fearsome. He has chosen such very nice wallpapers, and I think they have more to do with a room looking nice than anything. But I won't describe the house, as I know Mother has already described her visit to Edmund and his new house in her letters to you all. Bernard took me to see the boat race yesterday, much to my joy. We saw it from the Middlesex side of the river, just a little before Barnes Bridge. Of course, there was not much excitement as to the result. When they came opposite to us, Cambridge were leading by about three lengths and seemed much better together than Oxford, who were splashing about a lot and looked quite done in. I was quite sorry for them, though of course I wanted Cambridge to win. I have not seen a newspaper since, but we waited for the umpire's boat to return, and their verdict was four lengths. Of course, the worst bit of going to see it is that it is over so soon, but I think it is quite worthwhile going, and I enjoyed it very much. I was quite struck with the crowd. It seemed to be made up of every type of man, woman and child, though perhaps the most respectable part predominated. The trains were crowded, of course, but we managed to secure seats both ways and did things very comfortably. Cuthbert, what do you mean by putting Vera, naughty, in the middle of your letter without any explanation? I thought your friend, Mr. Rawls, looked very nice. Bernard, I think your expression, bagpiped the teams onto the field, is lovely. That was a very accurate description of the bagpipes which played as the two teams walked on. They sounded very grand and I greatly enjoyed the whole match. I am quite sorry it is the end of the hockey season. I have a question which I would very much like answered. What would you do if you were shown into a room and found the stranger of the opposite sex you had come to see on business fast asleep on the sofa, the maid having meanwhile shut the door and gone to look for the aforesaid person? I really want to know. Your affectionate sister, Vera. P.S. I think the thing that has amused me the most in this budget is Cuthbert's personal outbreak. Cuthbert, you do sound most awfully busy, but your letter was most amusing. Arthur, how dare you underline those words after that? Notes on Vera's letter. The descriptions of women's hockey from over a hundred years ago are just fascinating. Scarlet skirts, a long sleeve shirt and a tie. Imagine playing hockey wearing a tie. Vera described them as short hockey skirts. Hilariously to us, a short hockey skirt stopped about 10 centimetres above the ankle. I will put some photos on Twitter. The brothers saying Vera and her friends run like Greek goddesses. And the discussion about how long skirts get in the way of good stick work in a hockey match. And the small silver hockey brooch presented to all the England ladies. This interests me as I've just bought one from an online shop in Oxford called Bag the Jewels. I don't know for sure, but it is very likely that I've just found a turn-of-the-century silver hockey brooch which was either presented to an England hockey international or to a lady who played county hockey 
as Vera also talks about a hockey brooch presented to her as a member of the Kent hockey team. I will put a photo of it on my Twitter page, at Cox Letters. Avis's letter, Sydenham, April 26th, 1908. Dear family, Vera says she wishes I would learn to make another kind of F, as she does not like the way I wrote the letter F. There, F, a la Vera. Vera now says those brackets look silly. Do you think they're in the wrong place? What a splendid budget this is. Arthur, your letter is magnificent. I hope you are already writing instalments for your next letter. What a good idea starting your budget letter in advance of the budget arriving. I am trying to write my letter in the drawing room and Vera is a great distraction to me. The accounts of the great hockey match interested me greatly. I did like the schoolgirl's exclamation. Oh, don't they look lovely? But it made me quite angry reading about the ladies who would not give up their seats and then father actually talking to them and they couldn't produce their tickets. Why do ladies so often do it? So very rude. Vera loves wearing her brooch, which she had as a badge after the match, and it looks very pretty. I haven't yet seen her in her red hockey get-up, and I want to very much. Father still finds people to introduce Vera to as an international. He is so proud of her. Today he has told the man at Smith's bookstore all about her prowess on the hockey field. You will be surprised to hear what a strenuous day I had on the second day of my holidays. I asked Burr to take me up to the National Gallery. Well, we did that very thoroughly and then we had tea to strengthen us and then we proceeded by bus to the Tate Gallery. Then we walked to Victoria and we visited the Roman Catholic Cathedral. I did enjoy the National Gallery extremely and I found I liked several more pictures since I had last been. It really was rather interesting and most curious going from the old pictures in the National Gallery to the more modern ones in the Tate. I never realised the extraordinary difference between them before. The modern ones are not nearly so restful. Still, of course, it was a mad thing to look at the two museums on the same day. But I'm not sorry I did it. I'm hoping to see the Academy just before going back to Devonport, as I missed it last year. When Cuthbert came home in the holidays, Burr, Cuthbert and I went down to Branscombe from Thursday till Tuesday in Easter week to see if the place would do for our summer outing. I enjoyed myself tremendously. It was such a change and we had most lovely weather. We were all rather alarmed of our good landlady at first, Miss Dean. She is a person of most decided character and has a rather forbidding expression. But we found if we were very particular about our manners and always said thank you and good morning in our most courteous manner, that she could unbend and really be most affable and even joke just a little. She gave us to understand that she expects her lodgers to be well-mannered. Funnily enough, 
she didn't seem able to make up her mind quite as to whether she approved of Cuthbert or not. Funnily, did I say? Yes, funnily, because Cuthbert has been represented as the very peak of courtesy. Still, Miss Dean was not sure, and we found this greatly amusing. Although, of course, we had to be very polite to Miss Dean at all times. Well, I hope everyone will like Branscombe. I found a great charm about the place, and I expect to like it very much in the summer. I wish, however, that the beach was not all shingle. The primroses were quite marvellous for their size and abundance. I have never seen anything like such numbers before. Yesterday, Burr took Vera and me to the theatre. We saw the follies, which I found very amusing. I particularly liked the first two quartets about smoking. The hooker one was very good. Vera, I wonder if you actually had the experience which you described at the end of your letter. I think I should have opened the door again and shut it rather noisily so as to awaken the sleeping person. What would happen then, I don't know. I suppose I should explain who I was and what my business was, as the maid had already gone. Well, now I must stop. Yours affectionately, Avis. Enid's letter. 187 Lodge Lane, April the 30th, 1908. Dear family, I am very tired and I have had a most strenuous month. At any rate, I am looking forward to a delightful little round of visits from May the 4th to May the 18th. I shall begin with a visit to Edmund's new home on the eve of his wedding, which Bernard will doubtless describe as well as he did the hockey match between England and Scotland in the last budget. And then I shall go to Wimbledon, Sydenham, and then to Dorking. The house has been very full, as Francis Hen has been here for a month, and the children have had their two Wolverhampton cousins here. One day I find Owen and Winnie with a heap of snowballs by their side, hiding behind the hedge in the front garden, busily snowballing all the motor cars and the cyclists that passed in the road. Fortunately, A came on the scene before a policeman did. Since A last wrote, we have been very sporting, as we made up a party of four and went to the Grand National. It was the first time I had ever seen a horse race. On the whole, I was very disappointed. But I suppose a steeplechase rarely gives an impression of great speed, as there are so many hedges and fences. The course is two and a quarter miles long, and they go around twice, making a race of four and a quarter miles altogether. We saw very well right out in the country. We got places on a barge on the canal. The crowds were enormous and so very well behaved. An outsider, Rubio, won. The odds were 66 to 1 against. The next day, 
Charlie Isles took me to the semi-final of the football cup tie. Newcastle versus Fulham. It was most exciting. The spectators numbered 50,000. I do like being in the middle of a great crowd. It is most inspiriting. We have actually succumbed to the fascinations of a telephone and have had one put up in the study. Our name will not be in the list of subscribers until after July, when the new directory is issued. Therefore, no one knows our number. We can speak to them, but they cannot ring us up. We have, at present, all the joys and none of the sorrows. I have got another delightful hazel story for you. She broke one of her acorn glasses the other day and asked me what she should do with the broken pieces. I said she could throw them in the nursery fire. She inquired what would happen. I said, oh, it will melt. And in the morning, perhaps Elsie will find it in a very different shape. Whereupon Hazel, in an awestruck voice, says, Will it come out, a calf, like it did with Aaron in the Bible? She has remembered Aaron's excuse. I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. Another day, she said, I do wish I had wings and could fly. I replied, yes, it would indeed be nice. Whereupon she remarked, you would be able to get out of the way of policemen so nicely then, Mummy. Apparently thinking that was the height of my ambition. Cyril, Aunt Lizzie and A have been to see Candida, one of Bernard Shaw's plays. I had never seen anything of his on the stage before, though I had read several. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It made one think, and was very clever. I shall certainly see more of his if I get the chance. Now I have provided a new sensation for the budget this time. I have had all your characters told by your handwriting. I consulted a very good graphologist and provided specimens of the writing of the seven home members of the budget. I wish I could have added the three foreign brothers. I enclose the result. I wonder what you will think of them. Some are very good, but not others. I have not altered or omitted anything, and I need hardly say that I have not written them myself. Number one, Bernard. Sympathetic and affectionate disposition. Equable temperament, calm, firm, quite a good temper, good abilities, very truthful, not vain, persevering. Has constructive ability, could make a good plot, and has lots of ideas. Number two, Evis. Very conscientious, very reserved, matter of fact, 
not much imagination. Affectionate, independent, erratic. Unpunctuality, a marked feature, untidy. A little vain, has old maidish tendencies. Number three, Arthur. A noble character, high ideals. Furious temper, absent-minded. Intuitive perception, not naturally economical, but has become so by force of circumstance. Throws himself wholly into enterprises that he likes. Untidy, a disciplinarian. Number four, Vera. Artistic tastes. Sympathetic temperament, desires to please. Good manager. Calm, firm, amiable, straightforward and sincere. Excels in some outdoor pursuit, but aim not sure which. Number five, Edmund. Character still unformed. Very conscientious. Pays great attention to detail. Shows signs of becoming economical in time. Number six. Enid, a very fine character, does too much, tidy, generous, religious, idealises people. Number seven, Cuthbert, has much tact and diplomacy, good intuition, versatile and adaptable, has originality and some literary ability, conscientious. Sociable, cautious where the opposite sex are concerned. I have not been able at present to get the Blue Lagoon or King Peter, though I want to read them and I've had them on my list some time. Cuthbert, I was actually sacking my finger when I read your letter. Needless to say, it was hastily withdrawn. But I felt you were very cheeky. I too want to know where you suddenly put Vera Naughty in your letter. I will continue to correct your spelling in revenge. You have misspelled truly on the last page of your letter. Arthur, Frances Hen had a very similar experience to Evis when she once went to Brixton to inquire after a small slavey. The master of the house opened the door himself, quite in his shirt sleeves, and, misunderstanding her remark about having come to see after a servant, he banged the door in her face, saying, You wouldn't do at all for the situation. Your letter was grand, Arthur, and I most enjoyed it. Love to all, your affectionate sister, Enid. Notes on Enid's letter. What a great letter. So much interesting detail. The football semi-final she described as most inspiriting. I'm not sure I use that word nowadays. They watched the Grand National at Aintree, sat on a stand of seats on a barge, on the canal. Seats on the canal. What a strange thought. And Enid says, 
we have actually succumbed to the fascinations of a telephone and have had one put up in the study. They've never had a telephone before and have decided to install one of these newfangled machines in the study on the first floor of their house near Sefton Park in Liverpool. Wow, what a thought. And Enid is dabbling in graphology. One of the Sherlock Holmes stories also deals with graphology. And a hundred years ago, people really thought you could tell the character of a person from their handwriting. Of course, the idea is nonsense. Enid insists that she has consulted a graphologist and the siblings talk about this a lot in the letters to come. It eventually turns out that the graphologist was Enid's friend who'd been staying with her, the Honourable Francis Hen, who was married to Bishop Hen, who was the Bishop of Burnley. So, as Enid clearly had a hand in the analysis of graphology of the letters, it is likely that the characteristics that are listed are probably very accurate descriptions of the ten siblings. In the next episode of 100 Years of Cox. Bernard, Arthur and Enid go to Hallam Fields in Derbyshire for May and Edmund's wedding celebrations. Illness and booby traps also occur. Cuthbert sets out the route for the school cross-country run using bags of paper. Vera sits in the garden at Sydenham to write her letter as the whole house is being spring cleaned. There is a lot of discussion about characters and graphology. Neville is reprimanded for not having written a budget letter and Wilfred writes from Okanagan Falls in British Columbia and Aldwyn writes from Kotakota in Nyasaland. 100 Years of Cox, the Machel Cox budget letters and all content is subject to copyright and belongs to both myself and the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Machel Cox Letters is on Twitter at Cox Letters. And you can also email me, machelcoxletters at gmail.com. You have been listening to 100 Years of Cox. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.